one of the appeals of conspiracy theories is that it does take the anxiety that we feel from our uncertainty mm-hmm. and it validates it. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. So I've been thinking a lot about conspiracy theories lately. We've had so many of them bombard us in recent years. Comet pizza, chemtrails, birtherism, COVID, the vaccines. I've found myself wondering if they're a consequence of curiosity gone awry in the face of life's complexity. Does curiosity contribute to the initial growth and attractiveness of these theories? Might it be an antidote? Are there habits of mind, what I would call curiosity practices, that can help us avoid falling prey in the first place? But before we can get there, I think we need to get our hands around what brings people to these beliefs in the first place. And for that, I turned to Eric Oliver, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, who's been studying conspiracy theories for over a decade. His research shows how one basic tension explains both belief in conspiracy theories and our political divide, a divide he explored in his 2018 book, Enchanted America, How Intuition and Reason Divide Our Politics. I was definitely curious to learn more. So welcome, Eric. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. So what got you into conspiracy theories? When I was a graduate student in Berkeley uh, in the 1990s, I was wandering down Telegraph Avenue, and I had long hair at the time, uh, as a lot of graduate students do. (laughs) And when you have long hair, you get treated differently. Uh, The establishment (laughs) figures kind of look at you a little bit more suspiciously. And then all the kind of people on the margins of society are like, hey, kindred spirit. So I'm walking down the street, and this guy comes up to me like, hey, man, you've got to read this. And he thrusts into my hand this piece of paper that has this very, very detailed conspiracy theory involving Queen Elizabeth Mm -hmm. and UFOs and the Trilateral Commission and the kind of usual suspects. And at the time, I was working on my dissertation about political beliefs and how Americans understand the world. And I started looking at this. I was like, here's this guy who has a completely different way of understanding political reality than what my discipline understands, which is always about party and ideology and kind of leadership. And not only does he have this entirely different worldview, but he's going to the trouble of of disseminating it. Like it's so compelling to him that he needs to like let other people know. And it struck me that like this, rather than thinking this guy is just some sort of crazy on the street, maybe what he is tapping into is something that's more common. But I was working on other projects at the time, so I just kind of kept this in the back of my mind. And then fast forward about 10 years, and in 2006, I was running a survey, and I had some room on the survey. So I thought, <laughs> I was remembering the guy and said, oh, well, I wonder how common these beliefs and conspiracy theories are. So I picked up about like six really common conspiracy theories, things like, you know, do you think chemtrails that follow jets are a program of secret government spraying? Uh, for example, or do you think like 9-11 was an inside job? And when I got back the numbers, I was completely floored because it turned out about 50% of Americans believed in one of these six conspiracy theories. Wow. 
And uh, I remember I, I, I went to a an academic conference soon afterwards and I presented these findings to a lot of colleagues and, and they were like, no, they, nobody, <laughs> nobody could believe it. They were like, just, no, this is ridiculous. You, you've got some, something's wrong with your survey. Something, you know, that you're, you're doing something wrong. And I, and I was like, given the, the vociferousness of their response back, I was like, I think I'm onto something. Um, so I basically started running every time I ran a survey, I started including more conspiracy theories and got the same numbers back. And I kept saying, okay, <laughs> this is not simply just a, a measurement error. There's really something going on here. And then what I was curious about was, well, why, what, what, what accounts for this, this great enthusiasm for these conspiracy theories. And so I started looking at maybe some correlations that might go along with this. And it turns out the two biggest predictors of whether or not someone believed in a conspiracy theory was whether or not they had a lot of supernatural beliefs or paranormal beliefs. So mm -hmm. if they believed in angels or Satan, or if they believed in extrasensory perception or ghosts or things like that. And then that got me interested in saying, huh, well, what is it about conspiracy theories that's similar to this kind of other thinking? And the the reality was it's they're all both forms of what we would call magical thinking. Now, or magical, belief in the unseen, right? Some, right. And what, some and what, outside force. Right. And that's what magical thinking is. It's, it's yeah. basically, well, there's two elements to it. So there's one is, I believe there's some invisible force out there that's causing something to happen. And I'm going to believe in that explanation rather than one that's scientifically verifiable. So there are, there's a lot of, in science right now, you know, we have like dark energy and dark matter. There are things that we have theories about that we can't actually observe. And that's science until we have an alternative explanation that is based on something that's observed, observable. And what's interesting to me is then why is it that people choose to hold on to the magical beliefs in the face of the scientific evidence? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that became the real, real interesting question. What, what is it that magical beliefs do for us? that science does not. And I think that then led me back to, okay, what is it that conspiracy theories do for people that regular explanations about politics don't? So what makes a conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory as opposed to a scientific theory or a religious belief system? I mean, what's the, what's the distinction? Well, I think it goes back to what would be publicly observable and verifiable. Uh -huh. So conspiracy theories almost inevitably invoke some group working behind the scenes or in secret or something, something that's causing an event to happen that is not readily observable. And the conspiracy theorist says, well, this is the theory and there's a secret group that's doing this behind the scenes and they've left these little breadcrumbs here. And if you follow the breadcrumbs, then you can put together the evidence and you can see that the CIA, the Trilateral Commission, or George Soros is behind all of this stuff. But we don't have any direct evidence of that. But it's it's all either putting together bits and pieces of circumstantial facts that might somehow or another be interpreted in a way. And that's what then generally creates the theory. Now, you know, we all have theories about how the world operates. Science gives us theories, religions give us theories, and conspiracy theories give us theories. So, <laughs> right. yeah. Um, so they're all ways of trying to explain what's happening. I think what's different about science and what really differentiates a scientific framework is that it's replicable. 
It's observable. It, you can change it over time. And it's most importantly, it's falsifiable. Uh, so I, uh-huh. can, I can have a, a scientific hypothesis, like I set it out, and then I can do experiments and these experiments don't come back. I can falsify the hypothesis and say, I guess, you know what, this theory is probably not a very good theory. Uh-huh. It takes me back to a question of, these are people trying to figure something out. Would you describe them as curious initially? All right. So this goes to the question of what motivates curiosity. Yes. And 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 how how does curiosity differentiate itself from other psychological states? To answer this question, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, okay. My explanation for why people embrace conspiracy theories is because they're intuitive ways of understanding the world and. We, as, as any living creature, particularly a creature with a nervous system, we want to make order in our world. We want to make the world predictable. Our brains basically exist as prediction machines. They're there to help us navigate the world better. And the way we navigate the world better is by finding patterns, finding order, and making things predictable in that yep. way. Yep. So what we want is certainty. And we're highly, highly motivated to have certainty. When something happens that disrupts our ordinary expectations about how things are, are operating, we feel uncertain, we feel anxious. And what is anxiety there? It's there to motivate us to resolve the anxiety, to resolve the issue. Mm-hmm. It could be that there's a threat there and so we wanna run away from the threat or eliminate the threat. Or if there's uncertainty there, we wanna eliminate the uncertainty. We wanna go back and find predictable patterns and understand order here. So I think where curiosity comes in for us is as part of that desire to reestablish that kind of equilibrium, that ordered pattern for us. And so we're we're motivated then to find out new information and acquire new information. And that's part of what curiosity can come from a number of sources. But I think in this case, it comes from anxiety and desire to kind of quell anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what's so interesting to me about this uncertainty element within it, because one motivation for curiosity is this desire to resolve the anxiety associated with that not knowing. And yet too much certainty also really kind of shuts the door on curiosity, right? We stop questioning when we feel utterly certain. And that's why conspiracy theories are so interesting to me, because they they slip around in that space around certainty and uncertainty. And it's why your distinction between the intuitionist and the rationalists was so interesting to me. So talk more about that, if you would. So when we face uncertainty, we're highly motivated to reduce the uncertainty by looking for answers and digging Mm -hmm. around and seeking things. And what's compelling about conspiracy theories for us is that they provide us an answer. They provide us a framework. And the other thing that's interesting is they provide us a framework that validates our anxiety. So oftentimes when we're scared Uh, about things, we want to find a threat. Uh, A reason. Yeah. I tell a story about this when my son was five, I remember, and he was screaming about a monster in the closet. And I went in and after about 20 minutes of trying to negotiate with him about the monster in the closet, and he said to me, well, dad, if there's no monster in the closet, then why am I afraid? Yeah. And I was like, okay, you got me there. (laughs) (laughs) There is a monster. (laughs) No. And so, but that's, I think that's what 
one of the appeals of conspiracy theories is that it does take the anxiety that we feel from our uncertainty mm-hmm. and it validates it and says, you know what, guess what, you your feeling is not off base, You your feeling is correct. And that does two things weirdly enough. On the one hand, it does provide a short-term palliative because it feels like, oh, mm-hmm. my anxiety is not misplaced. That's great. But then the problem is, is that, oh, my God, there really is a secret nefarious force that's doing all of these terrible things. And, right. you know, there's, there's a lot of religious belief systems that do the same thing. Let's say, oh, there's this kind of evil force that's out there and it helps explain the cosmos. But, oh, my God, there's an evil force that's out there that's always at work and we have to be constantly vigilant. So that's why conspiracy theory theories hold their power over time, because uh, you go back and you look at, for example, Q. Q was a really interesting conspiracy theory because it, it kept evolving. There were these breadcrumbs that kept being dropped by these Q posters. Uh, and then there yeah. were these prophecies. OK, this is going to happen. And so there's all this mm-hmm. drama and you hold on and it's like the next episode. And then <laughs> that prophecy doesn't hold. But it was because we didn't get this quite right or, you know. It's actually, that was part of the plan to distract us, to get us to the next step. So that is one of the uh, allures of of conspiracy theories. And there's probably a very strong neurochemical element in terms of dopamine and uh, kind of neural signaling that kind of makes them very, very compelling within that. You're listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by J. Eric Oliver, professor of political science at the University of Chicago. We're exploring the intersection of curiosity and conspiracy theories. Okay, so we we have this theory about like, okay, why conspiracy theories and magical beliefs are intuitively compelling for us. And because they draw on our emotions, they validate our emotions, there are ways that we manage our emotions. And the other element that is important to note about magical beliefs and conspiracy theories is that they utilize these things called heuristics. And heuristics are these innate shortcuts that our brains use to make judgments about the world. And so, for example, we feel like, you know, if we touch something that's tainted, we become soiled and that we have to like cleanse ourselves. Or if we touch something that's really reverent and good, then we get that sort of magic juju that comes to us as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what's known as a contagion heuristic. Another heuristic is called a representativeness heuristic. We think that things that resemble other things share their qualities. So if I see, for example, a photograph of a family member, I don't see it as a piece of paper. I see it as somehow another embodiment of of them. And so, uh, and then I think where conspiracy theories, it's really important is an anthropomorphizing heuristic. We give intentionality to things that seem to move on their own. So mm-hmm. um, we think that plants and trees have a human-like quality, that animals have human-like qualities to them. Or we think that like the CIA wants to control us. Like the CIA is not a big, complex organization, but it's like a thing with a single kind of intention to it. Mm-hmm. So these are all common things that our brains utilize in terms of making judgments. So you put together two aspects of intuitions, which is the sort of the emotional component of anxiety and then this tendency to be drawn to these heuristics. And that's kind of really the grammar of intuitions. And that's how we make judgments based on our intuitions. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at children, children are 
terrific intuitionists because they don't really know any better. So that mm-hmm. this is how they understand the world is through their intuitions. And that's why they have magical friends with their stuffed animals and they see monsters in the closets and they're worried about cooties and all of these things. These are their intuitions, you know, running things. As we get older, we learn alternative ways of understanding the world. We learn uh-huh. about logic, reason, deduction, facts. And oftentimes these things give us information that's counterintuitive. You know, our intuitions tell us that the world is flat. Science tells us that, in fact, the world Mm -hmm. is round. And so one of the interesting questions is then why do some people gravitate towards more rationalist kind of explanations? And why do some people stay in more intuitive spaces? And as best as we've been able to tell, it's a combination of a lot of different factors. A lot of it has to do with the kind of household you're brought up in. So if you're brought up in a household with a lot of magical beliefs, you'll mm-hmm. probably continue those magical beliefs. Education's a part of it. Um, income's a part of it. If you're better educated, if you're more economically secure, you typically tend to be more rationalistic because you have a greater sense of security. I think you're just less anxious. People mm-hmm. who live mm-hmm. in a state of greater anxiety or uncertainty are looking to placate that anxiety and they placate that stress. So these are our factors. And then people who are, I think a lot of what explains it now too, is your contemporary cultural context. So if you are a member of a church, for example, that has a lot of magical beliefs, you're probably more likely to believe in a lot of conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're part of a new age movement that has a lot of kind of new agey magical beliefs, same thing. So are you in in a set of institutions that reinforce your intuitive way of thinking about the world? Or if you're like me, you know, I teach at the University of Chicago. It's an extremely rational place. And so <laughs> I'm bombarded with like, you know, always having to be rationalist, 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 rationalist. And the intuitive part of my mind, I'm always very so skeptical about. Uh, and then, you know, my wife is a very strong intuitionist. She's a writer. And she says, well, I'm a creative person. Of course, creative uh-huh. people are drawn their intuitions. They make these kind of associations. I, that's the world I live in. So uh, and I want to emphasize that we we all have intuitive parts and rationalist parts of our minds. It's not like we're sharply dichotomous between one or another, but it's more like a spectrum. Right, we probably each occupy some point along the spectrum, right? Right, right. But where you are on that spectrum can actually then end up saying a lot about how you understand the world. For the intuitionist, a rational argument is not going to have sway. Right. It's well, not going to change the the thinking. Of course, I'm looking for their for a place for curiosity in this. Are there strategies that actually do help people kind of step back from this magical thinking, kind of magical system? Or once you're there, you're stuck? Well, I, I would say we're all kind of stuck yeah. in our ways of thinking. <laughs> yeah. that's, this, this is the you know the the biggest challenge of of adult life is like I say you know we spend the the first twenty five years of our lives learning how to understand the world and then if we're lucky we spend the rest of our lives trying to unlearn those habits. Undo that, yep. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's if we're lucky. Um, so I don't I don't want to say it's just like magical thinkers who get stuck. You know I all of my scientific colleagues are as me habituated to their ways of understanding the world as anyone else. So it's not that it's, it's that I, th- I think it's just a different framework. 
And once again, it goes back to culture. I think there are some cultural contexts that encourage curiosity and encourage uh-huh. exploration because science is always trying to test itself and, you know, and update itself. And so it really does promote a more curious way of trying to interact with the world. There are belief systems and a lot of them are magical belief systems that are like, no, this is our dogma. This is our truth. Uh-huh. And you accept it. Uh, and there's no questioning. And, and so that kind of shuts curiosity down. Now, this goes back, though, to how did those two spectrums talk to each other? And so I get this a yeah. lot. People ask me, I'm going home for Thanksgiving. You know, Uncle Merle has got his conspiracy theories. I don't want the whole family table to blow up like it did last year, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody has this experience. And the way I understand this is twofold. As you mentioned, you can't rationalize with Uncle Merle. It's like my son, I couldn't rationalize with my son about the monsters in the closet. Because the belief in the monsters was completely intertwined with all of the anxiety that he was feeling. Yeah. And... The way to understand it is like like any belief that's going to be helping us manage our emotions, we're going to cling to it tenaciously. We're not going to let go of it. So simply trying to go and rationalize with Uncle Merle and say, you know, no, jets are not spraying. How could they even spray? That's a really inefficient way of distributing kind of mind-altering chemicals to the population. That That's not going to fly. I think there are two ways to actually bridge this gap when one faces it. One way is just to empathize. And this is what I do with my son. It's like, oh, okay, he's feeling afraid. And what he wants is to be seen, his anxiety to be seen. And so with, you know, with Uncle Merle and say, wow, so that's a pretty scary way of understanding the world. That must be pretty scary for you. Mm-hmm. You know, that must mm-hmm. be, how, how are you feeling about that? And just, yeah. you know, and just talk about that uh, rather than trying to get into a debate about what is factually correct. The other thing that I do sometimes, and I, I see this sometimes either with students or when I'm giving talks, and people will come in and they're, they want they want me to get on board with their conspiracy theory. That's really very important to them. And mm-hmm. one thing I say is, well, if we think about all of our beliefs are tools, they're just tools that we use to interpret reality. And like with any tool, we can think about, well, what is their utility? What's this belief actually doing for you? Is this, uh-huh. is this making your life better? Right. Is this helping you in any way? And that oftentimes takes people a little off guard. They're used to sort of defending the belief in that, you know, like in terms of its content. And that sometimes creates a little bit more space for dialogue. Well, you've just given me a wonderful prelude and a segue as well to kind of unlearning the first 25 years of our life. Because in the other time where you haven't been focused necessarily on conspiracy theory, you've been teaching a class at University of Chicago for what, 20 years now Uh on the intelligible self and trying to really actually sort of understand one's self. What through line do you see between your work in conspiracy theories and those efforts? This is actually a hard question. <laughs> there, there's an answer there. Um, probably what I've been most interested in intellectually is how do people make sense of the world and how do I make sense of the world? And yeah. not just the world outside, but the world inside as well. So I, I think in both instances with both conspiracy theories and this, I'm kind of coming at it from from two 
two different vantage points and trying to see linkages and merges and, and synthesis and b between these different ways of, of understanding the world. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to have to have you back to okay. dig more into that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm very excited for it. But before I let you go, are you game for my big jar wannabe analogies? Sure thing. Okay. So this is a literal big jar. I have slips of paper in here on which random words are written. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. So mine is panda bear. How is curiosity like a panda bear? Okay. <laughs> Yours is swimming. How is curiosity like swimming? And we have one for the audience. So do you want to go or you want me to go first? Um, you can go ahead and go. Okay. <laughs> panda bear. Um, oh. You know, I just read somewhere that the panda bear is no longer as imperiled as a species. And I grew up, you know, 50 years of panda bears at the National Zoo. They were an imperiled and endangered species. And I think curiosity sort of sometimes feels like an endangered species. But as with the panda bears, with some careful nurturing, it doesn't need to be quite so imperiled. So that's... Oh, I'm going to say curiosity is like band of bears. How is curiosity like swimming? Oh, I, I feel like I got an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <because laughs> I mean, think about it, like curiosity is about going into un, a, a different realm, a, a different realm, realm of uh -huh. uh, it's being open to new and possibilities. And if you think about when we're swimming, it's a different realm for us. We can go, we can suddenly now move through materials that we don't normally perceive we can go into depth we can go we can swim down we and it's temporal we have to kind of hold our breath when we're in the water um, we propel ourselves through water in a very different way than we do when we're just on land um, there's a buoyancy of course too and i think all of those are kind of characteristics of of curiosity Nice, nice, very nice. And um, audience, yours is creativity. How is curiosity like creativity? Well, Eric, thank you so much for this. And I do think it would be fun to get you back. Oh, I'd be happy to come back. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your creativity analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Eric Oliver. Links to his impressive and considerable body of work on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Shadow Play by Dorica via Blue Dot Sessions. As Eric's insights have percolated since we sat down, I found myself returning often to his suggestion to ask, how's that working for you? As a surprisingly useful and often disarming way to approach an otherwise perhaps prickly conversation. It's a great curiosity practice. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.